Hello and welcome back to Food Toxicology. And as we talk about toxicology and its intersection with the food system, we have to kind of start thinking about what toxicology is. And that's the title of today's lecture, Concepts in Toxicology. But I want you all to think about how many times, even in the past year, you've heard the word toxic. And how that word has actually influenced the way you follow in terms of your thoughts and your perceptions. In terms of you as an informed audience, uh, students of toxicology, students of food science, students of various sciences, we have a different approach to toxicology, the study of all things toxic, than perhaps the general public. In the media, the representation of toxic compounds and toxicology is somewhat different than those who study it as a science. In fact, I, I would uh, encourage you, next time you do see that word, to read it in terms of the context in the media representation. Uh, you cannot necessarily see the word lead or mercury or pesticide in a newspaper report without the modifier toxic in front of it. So it is a toxic pesticide, it is toxic lead, it is toxic mercury. And yes, these chemical compounds are in fact poisonous in high enough dose and high enough concentration, but in fact some chemicals are in such low doses they have no toxic impact. In fact, the survivability of species, in fact all species, requires us to have a tremendous amount of management of low dose intoxication. And so we have a very sophisticated biochemical apparatus to actually keep us healthy in the presence of natural toxins in the environment and in our food chain, okay? And that has nothing to do with some of the potential toxins that are associated with industrialization and the use of chemicals in the food system. In terms of concepts in toxicology, the point of today's lecture is actually trying to give you a broad-based background of some of the definitions that we will be using throughout the course. This is an introductory lecture, again, present you with a foundation that you will build on in terms of your further study throughout this course. Our learning objectives here today, we're going to try to understand and define toxicology and toxicity. We're going to discuss different types of toxic responses to get an idea of the range of what uh, biological manifestations may occur as a result of exposure to specific chemicals. We're going to try to explain how toxicants are classified, to give you some background in terms of what is uh, a particular type or classification of a toxicant. We're going to describe what's very important, the phases of toxicosis, the progression from exposure in terms of uh, uh, the uh, form of toxicology from exposure through its final progression into a disease manifestation. We're going to try to explain how concomitant exposure can influence toxicity. In other words, it is rare that we are exposed to just one chemical. We have many, many toxins in the environment, and sometimes those are additive, and sometimes uh, they are not. If you think back to some old movie representations of poisoning, uh, quite often uh, the villain will expose the, uh, the target uh, to a poison and then perhaps uh, with some sort of ill will uh, explain to them that they do have an antidote to that poison 
and that antidote will be available if, in fact, uh, they uh, pay them money or some other form of, uh, of, of uh, remuneration. So what is the toxin? It is a chemical. What is the antidote? It is a chemical. So here we have one chemical having a negative influence on the biological impact of another chemical. Finally, uh, in terms of the context of not necessarily the lecture, but the module of uh, exploration that we're doing uh, in this part of the course, we're going to try to develop an introductory understanding of toxicity testing. We're going to do that mostly through our readings in terms of the, the book and some of the background that we're doing. And you'll see this uh, as a part of various lectures throughout the course. Now, in terms of toxicology, it's best to start with what a definition of that uh, is. And, and in fact, toxicology is the science that deals with the adverse effects of chemicals on living systems. It's classifications uh, that actually uh, make up toxicology. Uh, we can have descriptive toxicology, which is addressing the question of what mechanistic toxicology, the why, and perhaps also the analytical toxicology of how much when we do the laboratory analysis, the CSI, if you will, the crime scene investigation that you might see on TV in terms of laboratory arts being applied to the science of toxicology. The definition of toxicity is that uh, degree to which a substance can harm humans or animals. And obviously, we can have plant toxicity and insect uh, uh, or various target uh, species uh, toxicity as well. We're going to focus on toxicity as it impacts humans and animals in terms of food toxicology and the subject matter of this course. Toxicity can be defined as acute, subchronic, or chronic. In acute toxicity, it involves the harmful effects uh, in an organism through a single or short-term exposure. Acute toxicity is what typically uh, we think about when we think about poisoning, where we see a fairly rapid onset of clinical signs and symptoms, and sometimes death in acute poisoning. Uh, this particular image uh, is a, a 1787 uh, painting from the Metropolitan Museum of Art in New York. Uh, it's the death of Socrates. Uh, Socrates uh, was a political activist as well as a teacher uh, in ancient Greece. Uh, because he disagreed with the predominant uh, power elite at the time uh, in terms of his opinions on uh, public policy, he was actually sentenced to death. Uh, death sentence at the time in ancient Greece uh, was uh, uh, usually done by having uh, the individual drink uh, an elixir of hemlock. Uh, hemlock contains conine, a very active and toxic alkaloid. And in fact, I would uh, imagine a very painful uh, death. We have as well, in terms of toxicity definitions, uh, subchronic. And this is the ability of a toxic substance to cause effects for more than one year, but less than a lifetime of an exposed organism. This is in opposition to chronic toxicity, where this is the ability of a substance or a mixture of substances to call harm, cause harmful effects over an extended period, uh, usually on repeated or continuous exposure. Uh, and that's uh, typically lasting for an extended period of time. Uh, in fact, sometimes uh, the entire life of the exposed organism. In terms of poisons and toxicity, the skull and crossbones, this isn't a pirate symbol. This is, in fact, the international symbol of poisons. Uh, it has been with us, actually, uh, for several hundred years. 
and is the international standard marking to communicate that in fact there is t potential toxicity associated with exposure to this substance, this chemical, this bottle. Now, in terms of toxicology as a, as a, as a profession, there are specialty areas that toxicologists uh, uh, take on. Uh, this is a very diverse, very complex area of science. I like to define toxicology as the interface between chemistry and biology. And so people sometimes have an uh, undergraduate education in biology and go on to graduate work in toxicology. Sometimes they have more of a physical uh, background in terms of chemistry, biochemistry, and go on into toxicology as well. Um, in terms of specialty areas, we have target organ or system. So we have neurotoxicology, genetic toxicology, reproductive immunotoxicology, endocrine toxicology, all of these being research areas that people undertake in terms of their careers in toxicology. Some people actually uh, will uh, go into a career where they're targeting specific species or systems. Aquatic toxicologists deal a lot with what happens in natural water bodies. Environmental toxicologists are a little bit broader in terms of the fate, transport, and impacts uh, of chemicals in the environment. Wildlife toxicologists will deal with manifestations of toxicosis in wildlife, obviously. Veterinary toxicology will do that, but they will also deal with food animals and toxicosis and prevention and management of potential exposure to uh, chemicals in livestock and production animals. There are also specialty areas in toxicology dealing with selected responses such as teratology, the study of malformations, genetic uh, or inherited mutations, as well as carcinogenesis dealing from chemical exposure. In terms of applied toxicology, we have de many different uh, uh, paths and, and sub areas of the discipline. Occupational toxicology deals with the management of typically workplace exposure to chemicals. Uh, we uh, have uh, uh, seen, for instance, uh, NIOSH, or Occupational Safety and Health Administration, that will set uh, particular limits, personal exposure limits, for perhaps uh, airborne toxicants in a workplace environment. Uh, they might actually manage that through uh, um, uh, air exchanges, limitations, ventilation systems, or even uh, personal respirators, personal uh, air supply devices. We have clinical toxicologists. Uh, typically, these are MDs or DVMs uh, that actually deal on a daily basis with clinical toxicosis. So here we have signs and symptoms of toxicosis, perhaps some clinical history of exposure, and we have some potential for disease in terms of this exposure. Sometimes clinical toxicologists will get involved with antidotes or uh, management, uh, and sometimes uh, the management uh, is uh, significant, and sometimes it's uh, treatment of uh, supportive therapies uh, to, to guide the patient through uh, a difficult health challenge. We have forensic toxicology, and this has been highlighted in many uh, television shows in terms of the investigation of poisonings, uh, determining the causes uh, of death uh, by chemicals. We have regulatory toxicologists, and we um, will actually, in terms of our regulatory history lecture, we've seen that, uh, in fact, we have at the government, federal government level and the state government level a uh, tremendous amount of regulatory oversight of chemicals in the environment, chemicals in the workplace, and chemicals in the food system. 
Regulatory toxicologists will do some of the ris risk assessment from the descriptive tests uh, associated with chemicals that are entering uh, the marketplace. In terms of developmental toxicology, people will uh, actually take on an applied toxicology career looking at new chem chemicals and uses. Uh, for instance, in the Toxic Substance Control Act, developmental toxicologists will take a look at chemicals and how they might impact, for example, the endocrine system or potential uh, mutations. In terms of the chemicals themselves, uh, we can classify them in many different ways, and you'll hear us describe uh, in the context of various lectures in this course uh, chemicals uh, in, in various ways. Uh, we can talk about them as uh, reflecting from their target organ impacts, target organ toxicology. So you'll hear us refer to things as neurotoxins or hepatotoxins. Uh, you'll hear uh, us talk about uh, chemicals in terms of their intended use, uh, for instance, uh, pesticides or solvents, uh, insecticides uh, quite often. Uh, the sources of these chemicals, uh, quite often, these will be uh, natural uh, chemicals. Uh, there are uh, a tremendous number of naturally extracted materials that are used in commerce and the poisons that exist in nature themselves, such as venoms, such as toxic plants like poison ivies, and the manifestation of, in the case of poison ivy, dermal toxicity resulting from a plant-produced chemical. We can also uh, classify toxicants in terms of a special effect that it might have. So we refer to some as carcinogens or mutagens or, for instance, endocrine disruptors or estrogenic chemicals in some cases in terms of a subcategory of EDs. We can also refer to toxicants uh, by their uh, chemical or physical state, uh, uh, gaseous toxicants, uh, liquids. Uh, we can also look at them from their toxicity and classify them as extremely toxic, slightly toxic, and we'll go through some of those classifications here in today's lecture. Um, we can talk about them in terms of their chemical composition. It's a heavy metal toxicant. Um, or we can talk about it, for instance, as an insecticide that's an organophosphate uh, moiety. We can talk about it in terms of its mechanism of, of action, like an anticholinergic or a cholinesterase inhibitor, uh, something that uncouples, uh, for instance, the Krebs cycle in terms of its uh, toxicant or toxicology manifestation. Um, occasionally during this, uh, the course of this and other lectures, I'll, I'll put uh, interesting pictures on the slide. This is a particularly, particularly interesting picture. This is a bag of acme arsenate of lead. Um, acme arsenate of lead uh, is actually an insecticide that was used uh, uh, in the uh, 40s and 50s and even in the 60s a little bit uh, in terms of uh, uh, an insecticide in fruit production. And so. There are many chemicals that we've used historically that have become wiser. Uh, we've now learned that this is an unacceptable uh, use of a chemical to use it not only because of its environmental impacts, but because of its potential for impacting the quality of the food system. Now we can classify uh, toxicants in terms of their uh, toxic responses. And for instance, uh, when you get a bee sting, uh, a bee sting for most of us that don't have an allergic reaction is a localized uh, uh, wound. Uh, we have the bee toxin that affects us, uh, our hand, our arm, wherever we got stung. Uh, and it, in fact, uh, has a, uh, uh, a very unpleasant uh, effect. Um, it can be determined in terms of the effect at the local site of contact. 
So for instance, if we consume something that is <clears throat> potentially toxic, we can have some uh, impact in the gastrointestinal tract if we breathe it. Uh, sometimes uh, we get a very immediate response, uh, like the people in Bhopal, India, uh, that were exposed to an airborne toxicant and had an immediate respiratory failure. Um, the bee sting actually, <clears throat> even though it's a, a local impact, it can have a systemic effect in folks that are allergic to that particular toxin of the bee. And so this particular uh, systemic effect is uh, distant from the exposure site. So a lot of times venoms, for instance, snake venoms, uh, will have uh, impacts throughout the whole body. There will be a cascading of toxic responses. Uh, sometimes these are CNS or central nervous system responses, uh, kidney failure, lung failure, all coming from the same single chemical, the same exposure. Sometimes uh, we have both. And so you, for instance, will see that the wound on your foot uh, in the event of a snake bite, uh, you're going to have a local impact. Uh, sometimes the emergency medicine approach to that is uh, kind of uh, uh, limiting uh, movement and, and blood supply to limit the systemic effects, but you'll have a local and systemic effect in terms of that particular uh, venom exposure. Uh, we can sometimes call uh, toxic responses as immediate, where we have an effect within minutes to hours after a single exposure. And sometimes there's a delayed onset, and that may actually take years after an exposure. One of the ones, the chemical manifestations or disease manifestations that happens uh, is uh, cancer. And cancer is typically on the order of a decade or two in terms of exposure to manifestation of clinical disease. Now, in terms of toxic responses, we can call them <clears throat> or classify them as reversible or irreversible, and we can largely determine that by um, the tissue involved, the length of exposure, and the uh, magnitude of the toxic result. Reversible uh, toxic responses are actually um, sometimes associated with rapidly regenerating uh, tissue. The liver turnover, the cells of uh, the liver are uh, very rapid at turning over, uh, regrowth there because of the nature of that particular organ, and we'll talk about that in target organ toxicology. This is the main uh, first pass organ in your body to deal with uh, exposure, uh, dietary uh, or respiratory exposure to toxicants. It is the main uh, biotransformation organ, and so it's set up to sustain uh, a fair amount of damage because it is a first pass organ and so it does rapidly regenerate. Intestinal mucosa as well, uh, for those of us that have ever uh, had uh, any sort of intestinal disease, uh, sometimes uh, these uh, actually are impacted by the endotoxins uh, developed from the bacterial infection. Uh, these endotoxins can have dramatic impacts on the intestinal mucosa. Uh, hematotoxicity or uh, impacts with bloods. We, blood cells turn over every 90 days relatively rapidly. Some irreversible toxic responses typically are associated with CNS or central nervous system damage, carcinogenesis, mutagenesis, and teratogenesis. Uh, as you can see in this particular slide, of uh, this is a, a Grebe embryo uh, that was uh, associated with uh, an environment that was heavily contaminated with selenium. 
Uh, selenium is a reproductive toxin because it substitutes for sul uh, sulfur and sulfur amino acids like methionine and therefore impacts the ability of proteins to fold correctly, impacts some enzymatic uh, development within the organism. And here in this embryo, you can see uh, many uh, uh, soft tissue formation defects in terms of cartilage uh, and bony structures. We can also talk about uh, toxins and toxicity in terms of bioavailability. Uh, bioavailability, again, dealing with that interface between chemistry and biology. What do we need to have a chemical that actually is adsorbed by an organism, a chemical that crosses that biological threshold? Now, think of us uh, as a cell, um, if you will, or a collection of cells. Uh, those cells have a membrane, and we have to have a chemical that has the ability to cross that membrane. And even our gut, our gastrointestinal tract, has a membrane barrier, even our lungs. And so we need to be able to cross those membranes, and how do we classify chemicals in their ability to cross membranes? One of the ways to do that in a simple sort of uh, diagnostic is something called the octanol water partition coefficient, the KOW. And essentially, this is an empirical solubility term that uh, allows us to assess the potential for transmembrane movement. And in fact, uh, the idea of an octanol water partition coefficient is very simply take a chemical and put it in a test tube that is uh, nominally half water and half octanol. Uh, so we have an organic solvent uh, that is nonpolar, and we have an uh, inorganic solvent, water, that is very polar. And the idea is uh, to see where, in fact, uh, the chemical partitions. Is it mostly in the water and therefore uh, a very polar chemical, like, likes, like in terms of solubility? Or is it in the nonpolar phase? In a certain sense, we are made up of water and fat. Not very glamorous uh, in terms of a description of humans, but in fact, from a chemical basis, in terms of the transport of chemicals across the membrane, we need to have chemicals that like water, but they also like fat. And in fact, as it turns out, uh, a partition coefficient of 10 to the second of about 100 to 1,000 in terms of that ratio of the concentration in the octanol divided by the concentration in the water is perfect for transmembrane movement. And so the log KOW would be about 2 to 3. And so that gives us an indication that we have pretty good water solubility, pretty good lipid solubility, and it's optimum in terms of crossing those membrane barriers. Now, there are other aspects as we get into our lecture on uh, adsorption of toxicants uh, that we'll talk about in terms of uh, other modes of transport. But this is a very simple form of determining uh, from a very practical way the bioavailability of particular chemicals. Uh, in uh, food exposure, in water exposure, in air exposure. Now, one of the things that we'd like to explore is the three phases of toxicology. Um, these are the exposure phase, the toxicokinetic phase, and the toxicodynamic phase. And in fact, we'll determine some of these uh, in terms of uh, uh, its manifestations in the body. But the exposure phase uh, is important. Uh, the toxicokinetic phase will go through each individual lectures on adsorption, distribution throughout the body, uh, metabolism, and then finally excretion. The idea in terms of animals and people is that we are exposed to endogenous toxins in our normal food supply. 
think of this, and I refer to this several times in the course, is that there is uh, a very quiet uh, warfare being waged uh, amongst and between organisms and their survival uh, uh, on the planet. Uh, this quiet chemical warfare has a lot to do with survival. Uh, it has a lot to do with who eats who uh, in terms of the food system. And the secondary chemicals such as venoms, such as uh, plant poisons uh, that exist out in nature. Uh, we might not uh, be uh, exposed to very high levels uh, because historically, uh, in terms of uh, the uh, uh, ancient peoples, we discovered uh, perhaps the hard way in many cases uh, what's good to eat and what's particularly toxic. Uh, a good representation of this is, for example, potatoes. Uh, potatoes have a natural alkaloid, solanine, silacidine, um, in them, an alkaloid that is a cholinesterase inhibitor and has relatively high toxicity. Current breeds of, of uh, the solanine family, tomatoes, potatoes, uh, actually are bred to have very low levels of this, tolerable levels. But in fact, uh, early on uh, in their introduction, especially into the, U the European plate, uh, uh, they were considered to be toxic vegetables because the tolerance for some people for the level of chemicals of the breeds and varieties that existed at those times was relatively low, and so there was uh, some toxicosis, some illness, some intolerance to those food groups uh, early on. In terms of the exposure phase, we deal with the aspects of bioavailability, and that's defined as the fraction of the dose available for adsorption. The main factors associated uh, with exposure is time and frequency, uh, and the route um, uh, of, of that in terms of whether or not it is an acute or subchronic exposure. The route of administration, uh, if we have an injection that's uh, intraperitoneal uh, into our bellies, uh, that's a very rapid onset of a potential toxin as opposed, for instance, to perhaps dermal adsorption that might take a significantly longer time. In terms of animal studies, uh, doing an injection is a way to uh, address the potential toxicity of a chemical prior to uh, metabolic influences, uh, for instance, that it goes first pass through the blood uh, and actually gets metabolized uh, by liver enzymes. Uh, in plant systems, the root and the leaves are uh, part of the uh, exposure phase or the boundary uh, in terms of uh, membrane movement uh, between chemistry and biology. In terms of the exposure phase, it's important in terms of dose consideration and the physical and chemical form uh, of the toxicant. Sometimes these can be particles uh, that uh, are digestible or not, and the surface area associated with those particles, how soluble a material is. There can be some host-related factors in terms of is the host uh, already predisposed to uh, uh, illness uh, via disease, chronic uh, sort of health concerns, uh, how strong is the patient in terms of uh, uh, getting exposed to yet another challenge on their health, um, as well as preabsorption metabolism. Are they set up to manage in terms of their vitamin, their health status, their nutritional status to manage uh, what they need to do in terms of detoxification of this? Uh, exposure and toxicology does happen. The pictures here are from uh, 2004, then-presidential candidate Viktor Yushchenko. Uh, during the course of his presidential campaign, uh, was actually poisoned. Uh, they're not quite sure who did it. Uh, obviously, the opposition party 
and uh, even some of the security forces in the government that disagreed with his political leanings are suspect in this. Uh, but uh, Mr. Yushchenko was poisoned with dioxin. Uh, dioxin is a very uh, potent uh, chemical in terms of its acute toxicity and its potential for carcinogenesis. We'll do an entire lecture on organochlorines uh, and dioxin and, and address some of the controversies associated with dioxin management in the environment and in the human food chain. This figure gives, uh, this picture gives a pretty dramatic representation of one of the major clinical manifestations of dioxin toxicity. It's referred to as chloracne. Uh, this is a leader of uh, one of the major nations on the planet, uh, poisoned uh, within the last couple of years. So this is not the stuff of old movies, ancient monographs, uh, and uh, good stories. Uh, these sorts of things do happen, and this is uh, current events. What we have uh, as well is uh, following exposure is the adsorption phase. And again, we'll do an entire lecture on uh, adsorption, absorption in, in toxicology. Uh, we can compare in terms of cellular, organism, uh, cellular and organismal uh, adsorptions and the impacts uh, uh, of absorption. We'll have to understand membrane morphology in a lipid uh, protein biolayer in terms of the ability of chemicals to transport across that layer. Uh, remember that biology is no, nothing uh, much more than organized uh, chemistry if on, on a molecular basis. And so if we have a toxicant chemical dealing with a biological uh, organized system at a molecular basis, it's chemicals dealing with chemicals. We do also have some physiochemical processes that will, trans, that will govern these uh, transmembrane uh, movements across membranes, uh, things like the lipid water solubility, the uh, degree of ionization of a particular chemical, and that can be manifested in, or examined in its uh, pKa or its ionization constants, acidity constants, its functional groups, the morph, uh, the, not the morphology, the conformation of the chemical. Is it a large chemical? Is it a small chemical? What's the molecular weight? Is it a protein? Uh, is it something that uh, exposes uh, uh, a tremendous amount of polar groups on the outside and therefore it's soluble? Uh, or is it something that is uh, relatively insoluble in water? In terms of transmembrane movement, we also are governed by thermodynamics. If we have chemicals in one area and not in another, there's uh, a whole uh, uh, field of physical chemistry that deals with uh, uh, movement and, and uh, motion of chemicals. Uh, we can model that by simple diffusion or Fick's law, as uh, you learned in freshman chemistry. We also have the ability to migrate through structures in membranes, aqueous pores, uh, and we also can have carrier-mediated transmembrane movement. Uh, this can be best demonstrated by certain chemicals. Uh, dimethyl sulfoxide is one of them. Uh, dimethyl sulfoxide will actually uh, enhance transmembrane movement of chemicals. Uh, it has been examined as a drug delivery agent. Many of you have seen uh, in advertisements or perhaps you have used uh, various medications that are available in patches. Uh, nicotine uh, is one of them, birth control is another. These are patches that uh, are uh, designed to enhance transmembrane movement of a drug compound from the patch across the dermal barrier. 
The sites of absorption also influence absorption uh, in animals. That's the gastrointestinal tract uh, through the skin. The skin is the largest organ in our body. Uh, we have the largest potential exchange there, although it's a very slow exchange typically. And lung uh, uh, as well, we have a very uh, intimate influence in terms of each breath we take, there's a very uh, rapid uh, potential for rapid absorption because the lung itself has extreme amount of surface area. The surface area is about half the size of a volleyball court, and so we have the, a great potential for uh, transmembrane uh, movement in the lung because that particular organ is optimized for absorption. Uh, in plants, we have the stomatal pores, the cuticle and the roots in terms of the site of absorption, insects, the pore canals, and in fish, the gills, the gastrointestinal tract, and also dermal because well, fish essentially swim in their particular aquatic environment. Now, in terms of the distribution phase, once the chemical has actually crossed that uh, membrane boundary and is within the organism, we have four fates, and that could be at the site of the toxic action. Uh, it could be storage, uh, things like storage into body fat of particularly lipophilic uh, chemicals, uh, organochlorine compounds, highly nonpolar. Uh, they tend to reside, uh, be lipophilic chemicals and reside in fat residues. Um, we can, uh, through first pass, uh, have metabolism of these chemical compounds. Uh, these first pass uh, biotransformations can act to detoxify or, in some cases, toxify a chemical. As it turns out, uh, our system of biotransformation, the biochemical biotransformation that the body does, uh, can in some case make a toxic compound more toxic in vivo than it was uh, outside. Um, in terms of uh, the final act, uh, the idea of metabolism is, uh, in essence, to turn grease into salt, uh, uh, to take uh, things that are lipophilic, uh, that are less soluble, and make them highly soluble. Uh, is done this uh, done by uh, biotransformations of adding things like sugar groups or highly polar groups on it to make them more water soluble. The reason we want to make things more water soluble is so that we can uh, excrete them uh, primarily in our urine. And so this is active excretion of those uh, potentially toxic compounds. In terms of distribution in animals, it occurs uh, via the blood and the lymph system. The blood system is very fast, the lymph system relatively slow. In plants, we have movement of toxicants uh, through the xylem and the phloem of uh, the uh, plant system. Now, in uh, animals, we have some barriers of toxicological significance. You have heard some of these, and we'll go through some of these as, uh, in further lectures. Uh, some of these barriers include the blood-brain barrier. In terms of, for example, uh, design of uh, pharmaceuticals, uh, it is sometimes important to have, for instance, an antibiotic cross the blood-brain barrier uh, to make sure that uh, the infectious uh, agent, uh, a microbe or whatnot, is attacked no matter where it is in the body. Uh, there's another barrier called the placental, which is the maternal-fetal barrier and uh, the mammary uh, uh, barrier between blood and milk. And these are typically based on different types of cells across membranes. Uh, typically, they're uh, cells that contain higher fat residues to change the membrane morphology uh, across these particular barriers. The idea is from an evolutionary survival aspect, you can think of this in terms of 
the uh, interface of uh, presentation of potential toxins in, in one's environment or food system in terms of nature, uh, you want something that, uh, you want to have a, a barrier that uh, somewhat protects your brain. Your brain is your, survive, your major survival tool, as well as uh, survival of your offspring via placental barriers and memory. And so you can look at this in terms of survival strategies and biology that uh, the evolutionary significance of these barriers uh, is uh, fairly explainable. Now, in terms of other um, aspects that affect distribution, we can have the affinity of uh, particular tissues for a xenobiotic. And again, I've talked about uh, the ability of our fat to store uh, fat compounds. I've uh, noticed that uh, uh, most of my students uh, are uh, students that were born after the 70s uh, um, and well after the bans on chemicals uh, uh, such as DDT, um, even though we don't use it in the United States anymore, uh, all of you, uh, no matter what your age, have a, a body burden in your fat tissues of about uh, three parts per million or so of DDT and its metabolites uh, because of the affinity of that particular chemical to fat tissue, fat tissue in the food chain, whether it be animal or plant sources. Um, blood flow and protein binding will also affect distribution if a particular organ uh, gets a high degree of blood flow, such as the liver, it actually will have a tremendous amount of potential exposure and that's actually by design in terms of detoxification after a toxic insult. The other factors that affect distribution can include the uh, route of administration and uh, the rate of metabolism. Some things get metabolized very fast and some take quite a bit of time. Another aspect of distribution, and we'll talk about this in a, in a whole lecture, um, is uh, enterohepatic recirculation. And uh, this is perhaps a quirk of uh, our digestive systems. And uh, on the course website, we have an animation of enterohepatic recirculation, but this is a way to ensure that uh, the blood flow that goes from our intestinal tract uh, back up into the liver for processing, that the nutrients get absorbed at a very, very high rate of efficiency. So there is a recirculation via the portal vein back into the liver um, and then uh, discharging back through the bile back into the intestine. Uh, that allows for a recirculation of nutrients uh, and the use of nutrients in liver-based synthesis. However, it also potentially exposes and re-exposes us to toxicants. They'll go through first pass, second pass, third pass in terms of a recirculation. And so that will have an impact in terms of distribution and redistribution in the body. Now, then we enter a metabolism phase. And again, I've talked that, uh, spoken that uh, metabolism is uh, uh, turning uh, very uh, non-water soluble or less water soluble compounds into highly water soluble compounds. And we'll do uh, an entire lection, uh, lecture on uh, biotransformation. But in the metabolism phase of toxicosis, we have phase one and phase two of the metabolism. In the first phase, bioconversion, we actually set the molecule up for uh, enhanced uh, uh, water solubility. And sometimes it actually stops there. And so there can actually be uh, uh, a multiple pathways of metabolism. 
uh, you'll be exposed to one singular uh, toxin and actually produce uh, in your biotransformation uh, three, four, five different types of metabolites. Some going through just phase two, others going to phase one, uh, I'm sorry, just going through phase one and others going through phase one and phase two. And in, this is a conjugation mode of biotransformation where a conjugation occurs between the parent molecule and uh, another molecule uh, to make it more water soluble, for instance, a sugar molecule. But the whole target of biotransformation is an enhancement of water solubility. Down the bottom of the slide, you see the molecular structure of dioxin, the dioxin uh, molecule. This is uh, tetrachlorodibenzodioxin, TCDD. The four blue um, thing, um, atoms are uh, the chlorines. Uh, the two red ones are the oxygens. The dibenzo groups uh, are in green. Uh, this particular chemical is uh, a very nonpolar chemical, and so the idea of removing this once uh, you've been intoxicated uh, is, is a very significant challenge in terms of biotransformation because you have to take something that is a very nonpolar chemical and create something that it will be, make it uh, enhance its water solubility. We'll talk about some of the metabolism and uh, uh, biological fate of dioxin in our further lectures. And one of the things we need to be uh, cognizant of is some of the factors influencing uh, toxicity. And we talked a little bit about uh, those in an introduction, but one of the ideas is concomitant exposure of multiple chemicals. And we refer to these as additive synergistic potentiation and antagonism. Additive uh, toxicity is when we have uh, two chemicals, and I've identified this as two plus two, uh, equal four. It's additive in the same way uh, two plus two equals four. And an example of that is two organophosphate compounds both having cholinesterase inhibition, but they're additive. They may not have the same level of cholinesterase admission, so, uh, but it is still additive. One and another lead to the same sort of end point of toxicosis. Synergistic uh, toxicity is uh, uh, best represented by the sum of the two chemicals being greater than each uh, independently. And so there is a 2 plus 2 equals 10 kind of effect in terms of two chemicals having uh, significant toxicity in and of themselves, but together they uh, give you a very, very large scale. An example of this is carbon tetrachloride combined with ethanol uh, leads to uh, a very devastating hepatotoxicity. Potentiation is the same sort of uh, addition, but as it turns out, one of the chemicals has baseline toxicity and the other is regarded as relatively non-toxic, but together they uh, add up to more toxicity, 2 plus 0 equals 6. An example of that is isopropanol uh, with uh, carbon tetrachloride uh, as a tumor promoter. Antagonism is uh, the antidotes that we all hear about. It's a chemical compound that in and of itself might have some toxicity, but when it's placed in presentation with another chemical compound, it actually defeats the mechanism of that chemical compound. So BAL, which is British anti-lewisite, uh, which was the antidote uh, for some of the heavy metal mustard gases used, uh, not mustard gases, heavy metal um, uh, arsenic 
tetroxide uh, chemical warfare agents, uh, it was uh, regarded as the antidote for those, uh, and British anti-Lewisite, or BAL, um, was used uh, in an antagonistic 2 plus 2 equals 0 to remove or lessen its toxic impact. And we'll talk about some of those as we modify, um, as we talk about some of the things like uh, cholinesterase inhibition, how atropine acts as an antagonist for uh, cholinesterase inhibition. Finally, we come to the excretion phase of toxicology. This has toxicological significance because this is extremely important for the survivability of the organism. Primary in terms of importance is renal excretion. We want to turn it into something that is water-soluble uh, and pass it. There is non-renal excretion in terms of removal from the liver via bile salts uh, and back into the intestinal tract and fecal matter. Um, we have expiration. Some uh, biotransformation metabolic products will actually have a high enough vapor pressure that they will cross uh, lung tissue in the opposite direction with our exhaled CO2. Um, in terms of comparative aspects, in terms of excretion, animals and plants have different ways of doing things, but the idea is still the same. Let's get rid of the chemical compound, be it the original toxic chemical or a metabolic product. Now, toxicodynamics uh, deals with the uh, process of the relationship between the chemical and the final uh, toxic response. If we look at these dose-response relationships, the quantitative assessment of toxicology, we have a, a toxic chemical that has a key interaction with a, uh, some sort of critical, critical target. Uh, for example, this can be a nephrotoxin that is the target. And that uh, key uh, modified criti critical target actually develops a, a key lesion. Those uh, progress in terms of, in this case, renal failure to some sort of overt biological response or some effect. And so that's the dynamic aspect of toxicology. Um, we can also modify that in terms of a disruption of an intrinsic activity. Uh, in terms of a response, we can have uh, a chemical defined as an agonist. Uh, those are substances that have intrinsic activities, such as oxygen. It has intrinsic chemical activity and reactivity in the body. And we can also have a um, uh, define a chemical compound as an antagonist, and those are things that work in opposition to agonists. And so an example of this would be carbon monoxide. And carbon monoxide would be something that works against it, displaces oxygen in terms of uh, hemoglobin function. It binds the heme groups. It binds it actually more securely. And it is less reversible in terms of uh, its toxicity than the, uh, uh, the agonist, which is oxygen, which does get released. Drugs typically we find in terms of uh, its intrinsic activity, they have reversibility. Toxicants typically in terms of their activity are non-reversible. One of the ways we can kind of illustrate this point is uh, a particular toxicological manifestation in oxygen transport, and this is methemoglobinemia. This is methemoglobin formation. This is when you take the iron and heme group of your heme group of your hemoglobin you actually oxidize the iron from ferrous iron to ferric iron. Some of the toxicants that can do that are nitrate and nitrite, uh, naphthalene, chlorate, acetaminophen. 
whether or not you can make it out in terms of the color on these slides, you'll see a blood smear of normal. It's a little bit more of a red, uh, as you would imagine, a normal blood would look, uh, whereas methemoglobin blood is a little bit more of a chocolate brown abnormal color. It has a lot to do with the color of the uh, ferrous iron versus ferric iron in hemoglobin. Um, there is oxygen competition uh, at the uh, uh, ferrous iron in, in heme. Uh, it can be uh, outcompeted, uh, for instance, by carbon monoxide uh, and by cyanide, which forms a very strong iron bond. Uh, these can get reversed. Uh, there are therapies, there are antidotes uh, in terms of methemoglobinemia. Uh, we'll talk about some of those in further lectures. One of the things I want to make a strong point here as we're talking about toxics and uh, concepts in toxicology is that we are fundamentally dealing with chemicals, biochemicals, and their influence and impact on organisms. I want you all to kind of, even though we might talk about disease manifestations, try to understand the actual biomechanics of the chemicals involved. I've thrown up here uh, a um, molecular structure representation. Uh, this is a hemoglobin molecule, uh, in this particular case, from uh, an oxygenated form uh, from a goose. Uh, and you can see the heme moieties here, um, here, and here. And although there's this protein substructure, uh, that supports it, we're actually dealing uh, with uh, definitive chemical interactions on molecules. I want to make sure that you understand that these uh, will lead to and have cascading effects in terms of clinical manifestations of toxicological uh, disease. In terms of toxics and disease, we can classify chemicals in terms of their toxicity rating. And so quite often in terms of the marketplace, you will hear something being advertised as non-toxic. What exactly does non-toxic or uh, extremely toxic mean in terms of uh, the uh, representation of dose and response? This graphic here gives you an idea of uh, how to classify um, chemicals um, in terms of its dose and what that means in terms of the average size of a, um, uh, an adult uh, uh, human. Uh, practically non-toxic, the dose is on the order of 15 grams per kilogram. What that means for the average size adult is that's more than a quart in terms of uh, the volume or the mass of material. Uh, in terms of uh, things that are uh, moderately toxic, we get down into the half a gram to five grams uh, per kilogram and that's between an ounce and a pint. And so if a chemical is uh, listed as moderately toxic, you have to look at, at uh, the size of the dose. Uh, this is a, a macro dose. You have to try to actually expose yourself to five grams uh, per kilogram of uh, a toxic compound. Uh, think about your daily uh, consumption habits and what you eat and drink and in terms of pure product of a material, of a single material, how often do you drink a pint of alcohol? Uh, not very often, I would hope. Uh, uh, it's a, a, um, a material that has uh, potential for toxicity. But we can get into the regime of super toxic and extremely toxic chemicals. And super toxic, we start developing toxicity at less than five milligrams per kilogram. 
And so in terms of exposure, that could be a taste of a material, less than seven drops uh, for an adult human being. And you can kind of see that, in fact, the exposure. So if we're talking about uh, chemicals, uh, in terms of its potential toxicity, it's rare that we get into the super toxic regime. Uh, those chemicals just aren't, uh, we just don't get exposed uh, to them very often, uh, uh, definitely for cause in terms of things like in, uh, agricultural chemicals or chemicals that are used in trade or commerce. Give you an idea in terms of the spectrum of the toxic dose uh, we can talk about, and we'll, we'll deal with this in terms of dose response, how to develop a term called LD50, or the lethal dose in milligrams per kilogram of, uh, for 50% of the population. Uh, typically, this is lethal doses for um, uh, um, uh, animals uh, that result from animal studies. But in terms of an LD50, in terms of identifying this, ethanol we have at 10,000 uh, parts per million. Sodium chloride, table salt, is about 4,000 parts per million. Um, the, so that you know in terms of converting parts per million, uh, in terms of the uh, size uh, of the uh, uh, dose, um, uh, a part per million, 10,000 part per million is, is a 1%. Uh, so when our, uh, we get exposed at a level of 10,000 part per million, that's a 1% exposure. Uh, we go down through this list and we see morphine, sulfate, uh, drug, phenobarbital, a depressant. Uh, DDT is 100. Picrotoxin, uh, which is actually a toxin that comes from the illustration here, the fishberry plant uh, at uh, 5. Strychnine uh, sulfate uh, from the Nux vomica plant. Uh, used as a rodenticide, it causes hyperactivity and nervous excitation. Uh, at two, nicotine, uh, which is one of the active agents in cigarettes, uh, at one uh, milligram per kilogram. Uh, Tubocurarine, uh, the curare uh, poisons are the, uh, you've, you've seen in uh, literature perhaps, uh, poison darts uh, that are used by Amazonian Indians, the poison of choice is uh, curare, um, that's 0.5 milligrams per kilogram. Tetrodotoxin, which is uh, a toxin we'll talk about in marine toxins in terms of exposure. Uh, it's the active toxin in puffer fish. Uh, it's in terms of human consumption. It's uh, uh, in a, uh, a dish called fugu that's uh, in Japanese restaurants. Tetrodotoxin is a neurotoxin uh, at 0.1 uh, milligrams per kilogram. Dioxin, uh, there is, uh, it's a very, very potent toxin in terms of its potential uh, for lethality in some animal species, uh, zero, zero, 001 milligrams or a microgram per kilogram. And then Bt toxin, uh, uh, I mean, not Bt toxin, botulin toxin um, is uh, uh, significantly less. It's one of the most toxic substances uh, known, and it's of great concern in terms of food microbiology and the presence of those particular bacteria in food products. Well, that's uh, what we have uh, in terms of today on uh, concepts of toxicology. Um, the next time what we'll do is try and build on this, but we'll broaden it out a little bit. I wanted to introduce some special topics here early 
uh, in the course uh, to identify uh, some of the areas of food toxicology concern to give you an idea of the issues and the management criteria. Now that we know about regulation, some of the fundamental concepts, let's talk about the interface between those concepts in the marketplace and the arena. And that particular uh, lecture subject for next time is going to be uh, pesticide residues in food. Until that time, thank you very much. We'll see you later.